we're finishing up this series, Stones and Bones, where we've been looking at the foundational pieces, the foundational experiences of faith, and how as we uncover those, those might have an impact in our life here and now. And this whole idea of living bones, which we're going to be talking about tonight, got me thinking of an experience I had when I was a little kid. Probably around the age of five, I would guess, as I, uh, as I try to think of how I would have thought of the things that were going on. But it was one of those summer days where my friend George and I uh, had nothing to do. So we were running around the house, literally. That's why I think it was like five or six, just, just running around the house. Uh, and my mother and, and her friend were, were there on the deck, and uh, they were drinking those, those lemonades that burn a little bit when you, when you drink them, um, but they're really tasty. Um, but you get yelled at if you drink too much of it um, for some reason. And uh, apparently they were being somewhat bothered by George and I just running in circles around the house. So us being about five and them being older and wiser and, and smarter, they said, why don't you guys go and look for some dinosaur bones? I go, oh five years old. That's, you're on that job, right? So, uh, all right. So uh, where we lived was uh, called Griffin Ridge, and uh, this, just this ridge that we all lived on one side, because potato fields across the road. It was wooded on, uh, on the side everyone lived on, on the ridge itself, with a, f- a few fields and openings and things back through the woods. So George and I, again, around the age of five, just take off into the acres and acres of woods, which we, in fact, knew very well, and apparently in that day and age uh, was safe uh, for five- or six-year-olds to wander aimlessly through. And we went looking for dinosaur bones. And we looked, and we looked, and we looked. And do you suppose we found anything? If you said no, you'd be wrong. <laughs> because about a half-mile back behind the houses, through the woods and in a little clearing, they're sticking out of the ground with this little knob of bone, about like that. And you can imagine our excitement as we found this. And it was, it was actually bigger than this, probably as big as my fist, sticking up out of the ground, this knob of bone. And we had found dinosaur bones. Now, of course, we couldn't lose this. We would never find it again. So one of us, I stayed behind. George ran and had to convince my mother and her friend, who had now had several of those lemonades that that burn a little bit when you drink them, to bring some shovels to help us dig dinosaur bones. Now, who knows whether the lemonade made it an easier sell or a harder sell, but about 45 minutes later, after being baked in the sun, eaten by black flies and and mosquitoes, my my little friend George and my mother come with a couple shovels, and we dig out these bones. In fact, it was was two of them together, about three times this size, or at least in my five-year-old memory, these bones, and we took them out of the ground, and we had found dinosaur bones, and no one told us differently. Now, it's odd that for the rest of the summer, we played with these bones. They never ended up in a museum. There were swords. Uh, we told our other friends that we had dinosaur bones, and eventually they were lost to childhood history. Um, at some point in the next year or two, I, I figured out those were not, in fact, dinosaur bones. It's probably some cow's leg from pastures decades old, um, that we had found. Nonetheless, very exciting. You go looking for dinosaur bones and you still come across a cow's leg sticking out of the ground, you know, that counts for something. But it wasn't real. 
And like I said, it was lost to uh, childhood experiences and memory. No idea where those, uh, you know, cow leg bones or maybe the bones of someone who was murdered. Again, no one ever found out. Uh, there was no forensics done. Um, and sometimes as we uncover these things of faith, I know one of my worries is that it has a lot of interest in the moment. We think we've discovered something. But as we get removed from it, feel like we grow up, mature, they become those childhood stories. And it's sort of neat to reminisce about it, and yet it's a great childhood memory. But, you know, what difference did a couple cow leg bones make to me and George? It was fun for a day. We played swords with them for a summer, and then they were lost. And I wonder if any of us have, have experienced that as we uncover things of faith. In the setting of worship and with other Christians, it's exciting, it's interesting. But as we leave these places or other things come into our lives, the life goes out of those. We doubt, we question, we wonder. And sometimes things of faith, if we're honest, often feel like childhood sort of memories and better left there. And the more we get displaced and disconnected, the more uh, we get sort of dried out and scattered, uh, the easier that becomes to forget those stories, to not be rooted and grounded. And many times through history, God's people have experienced that. Uh, the Hebrew scripture of the Old Testament is filled with story after story of, of the ups and the very deep downs of those experiences, where their memories of faith, the things they were meant to be rooted with, began to feel like childhood tales. And one such time was during the time of Ezekiel. If you want to flip in your Bibles and look at Ezekiel chapter 37. It's a time where God's people have experienced years of exile. In fact, to such an extent, they're, they're somewhat settled into that condition. They are now part of the Babylonian Empire. Many of them have been literally displaced and now live in a new land. They've been unearthed in a way that uh, is not good. Uh, because for those people in that day and age, to be disconnected from your land means you're disconnected from your heritage, your history, and even your God. At least that's how all the other cultures around them thought of, that their gods were tied to their land. And so time and again, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, would have to remind them, I am God wherever you are. And yet God's people needed encouragement. They needed to be reminded that, that they were part of a deeper story and that the story wasn't over that these bones could live again. So Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 through 14. And we'll just kind of walk through this a little bit. But Ezekiel receives this vision from God. Perhaps he's praying, meditating on Scripture. Perhaps he's walking, and God sort of uh, overlays on the landscape around him this imagery. But starting in, in verse 1 of Ezekiel 37, he says, The hand of the Lord came upon me, 
And he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. And it was full of bones. And he led me all around them. There were very many lying in the valley, and they were dry. He said to me, mortal, can these bones live? I answered, Lord God, you know. know, Only God knows. Have you ever had that be your answer? Questions you ask of yourself? God only knows. Uh, Can this faith of mine uh, have life again? Can these questions I have, because I'm not sure faith is something worth having, can it come alive for me? And it's a good place to start, to recognize that only God knows uh, what can live again. But it's a picture of hopelessness. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not just the carcass and get some other bones here scattered in the sand, which during our prayer time later, you may want to sit over there and, and reflect on those. In fact, that was a, one of the practices of some of the saints of the ages. You see some of the artwork where they've got the skull on their desk or, or they're holding it. And one of, the, uh, one of the spiritual practices they would do, which seems a bit morbid to us, uh, but perhaps we should think of it more, was they would contemplate their own mortality. The fact that they were creatures and had a creator and that they were going to return to bone and dust. And apart from God's intervention, that's how they'd stay. But for Ezekiel, this image is not just a, you know, a set of bones scattered, but it's a valley filled with them. It's desperate, it's desolate, it's without hope. And it almost seems cruel that God asks him, will there ever be life here again? But then God continues. He says, then God said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you. You shall live. I will lay sinews on you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you. And you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. An odd request, isn't it? (laughs) To preach to things that are dead and lifeless. Uh, Though some of us have had that experience in other ways before. Uh, This is not one of them, by the way. But Ezekiel, trusting God enough to obey this crazy request, begins. And in verse 70, it says, So I prophesied. (laughs) You know, I like to hear it in that tone of voice. So, nothing better to do, Valley of Dry Bones, no one's around. I just started preaching. Uh, so I prophesied as I had been commanded. And as I prophesied, suddenly there was a noise. Can you imagine that noise, Abel? The rattling of bones? That'd be kind of weird, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> there was a noise and a rattling. And the bones came together. Bone to bone. And I looked, and there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. 
And so now it's gone from desolate to macabre, you know, to very disturbing. Because now it's a valley of perfectly preserved cadavers. Just laid out there. Or perhaps standing up. I don't know which would be more disturbing. The uh, kind of the zombies pre-cued or them still on the ground. But I think of my own experience sometimes of asking that question, can these bones live? Can faith live? Can what I'm struggling with have some life and vitality to it? And sometimes being tripped up by the idea that everything seems put together, all the pieces are in place, it's all hooked up right, whether it's, uh, you know, I I think I've got the right job. I'm pretty sure I did the right major in education. Uh, uh, Most days, I think I'm married to the right person or... Kids, they're the one, no one switched them at birth, as far as I can tell. And I can tell with mine, they're, they're mine. Uh, the pieces seem to be there. But where's the life? Or in the church, <laughs> that imagery of being the body of Christ. We have worship services, we talk about Jesus in the Bible, we've got nice people. All the pieces are there, but sometimes it's just a corpse on a slab. Or worse, it's that animated zombie, you know, just looking to eat brains or something. Uh, You've been to that church, right? (laughs) You come to the door, brains. Um, Verse 9, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, mortal, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. I prophesied as God commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, a vast multitude. Now we're talking, right? You may be familiar with this, but throughout Scripture, that imagery of breath and wind and spirit, it's all this interchangeable word. In the Hebrew, excuse my pronunciation, but something like rach. I need more of a cold. Uh, In the Greek, in the New Testament, it's pneuma. Wind, breath, spirit. It's this idea of God's spirit. But it's the spirit of God hovering over the the chaotic waters of creation and and forming them into something, or God's breath entering our first parents, or or the breath of life as he knits us together in the womb, or his Holy Spirit coming upon us. You know, in the Old Testament days, you know, he'd come on individuals, a man here, a woman there, for a special task where they need to be made more alive to take on the challenge, Samson, Deborah, uh, Bezalel, the artist, uh, Moses. But it was never a multitude. Reminds me of the, I think it's an image, in fact, of, uh, of the newborn church, sort of still in utero. Christ has risen from the dead. He spent 40 days uh, making himself known, proving through his words and through his physical presence, uh, appearing to some 500-plus people that he is, in fact, risen and alive. Then he ascends and, and disappears, and they find themselves a body. And yet, 
not quite alive, huddled, well, huddled, 120 of them or so, in this upper room. And then, like this vision, there's a rattling. There's a sound like a mighty rushing wind. There's something like tongues of flame. And they're filled with God's spirit. They go out into the streets and and they speak of who Christ is and the life God offers. And it says some 5,000, a multitude, received God's spirit that day. It's a beautiful vision, that day of Pentecost. And as God says in, in verse 11, he's speaking of his people. Israel, and I think by extension, through the church and to us today. He says in verse 11, Mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. That's the cry God is answering. In a couple weeks, in fact, uh, starting at Easter, uh, we're going to speak to that reality through that series, uh, Failed Christians which I think will be a wonderful, uh, though somewhat raw journey at times, of admitting we often cry this. Our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. Um, But then the words of hope, as this image, this vision that Ezekiel has, God promises that this isn't just smoke and mirrors. That this isn't another childhood tale. is some dinosaur bones that aren't real. But this is the picture of what God's going to do. And he says again to Ezekiel, Therefore prophesy and say to them, the people, not these dry bones, but to my people, Thus says the Lord God, I am going to open your graves Bring you up from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you back to the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you on your own soil, and then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and will act, says the Lord. Stones and bones, unearthing space foundations. And here's God saying, wait till you see what I unearth. As Christians, we confess that the God of the Bible is Jesus. We make no apologies for that. That New Testament, Old Testament, before creation, when it all wraps up, Jesus is Lord and God. And it's good to be reminded that Jesus is not an archaeologist. He's a grave robber. With all the offense and breaking of taboos and complete disinterest in being polite or proper that that entails. He doesn't deal in museum displays. He deals in resurrections. And he offers new life. 
Now, there was one man in the 15th century that had to come to terms with this idea of whether these bones could live. This man did not ask this question early on in life. In fact, it never crossed his mind. Um, he lived what many would consider a good life. He was a, uh, he was a Basque soldier uh, for the kingdom of Spain, a nobleman born to a noble family. He was the youngest of 13 children, however, so I suspect as the youngest of 13, probably felt a need to make a name for himself, to prove himself. I suspect there's many older brothers who already took care of the family business, the family name. His older sisters, you know, married the right people, and all that was taken care of. So for him to stand out and maybe even overcome that 13th child, you know, Paul that may have hung over his life, uh, at the young age of 16, he set out to make a name for himself. He became a page to a Juan Valesquez, not a coffee guy, that's Valdez. This is a Valesquez who was a treasurer of the kingdom of Castile. Um, and through that experience, he got to enjoy all the benefits of, of a royal court lifestyle. The gambling, the women, the sword play, the adventure, all those things. And proved himself uh, in wonderful ways. Uh, so that at the age of 30, in May of 1521, as an officer in the Spanish army, he set out to defend the city of, of Pamplona against the French. Now, we might think that would be an easy thing nowadays. Back then, the French were tougher. Uh, and horribly outnumbered, uh, this man nonetheless convinced his commander to take on the challenge. He wanted to make a name for himself. He wanted to live life to the full. And yet in the heat of battle, a cannonball smashed his legs. Almost completely shattered one of them, broke the other. And they were soundly defeated, he and his army. The French won the battle. And admiring this man's courage, instead of imprisoning him, they allowed him return, to return to his people to recuperate. And it was during his recuperation that that question haunted him. Will these bones live? In fact, his leg had to be set and then broken again to allow for better setting. Their anesthesia, nothing but strong wine. Uh, eventually, a protruding knob of bone had to be sawn off just so he could get his boots on. Um, his legs never completely healed. And yet it was during his recuperation, as he begged the question, will these bones live, that he discovered what life really was. As he laid there in his bed recuperating, he had time to, uh, to read the scriptures, to see the life of Christ, the life that he laid down in our place. And it was through that that he recognized the folly of the things he had pursued, the emptiness of that life. And regardless of whether his bones would ever be whole or healed again, he wanted his spirit to be. And so renouncing his sin, receiving Christ's forgiveness, he determined to live life in Christ from that day forward. Now, for him, it was a hard journey, this man. Uh, 
a hard struggle, as it is with many of us. But he was trained as a soldier, had lived a rough life as well as a privileged life. He lacked any proper education to do things like pursue the priesthood. And at the age of 30, that would be crazy anyways. So he figured he'd do a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and go by, by way of Barcelona first. And in fact, his newfound faith was so raw that he almost kills one of his traveling companions because he, he talks trash about Jesus' mother. And you can say what you want about my mom, but don't say that about Mary. And, and he almost beats a guy to death after he's a Christian, so imagine if he hadn't been. Uh, fortunately, the guy doesn't die, um, though he probably walks with a limp as well. Uh, and this young man now in his early 30s, still a hothead, tries to head to Jerusalem, but never actually makes it. It's it's already been, uh, it's in the possession of the Turks, uh, the Roman government, the Pope, and whoever else will not let pilgrims go there. And so he ends up in a place called Manresa. And it's here where he truly starts to develop a life of serving Jesus and his church. Where, uh, where his hot temper, his, his reactions uh, begin to uh, develop in a better direction. And he even decides at the age of 33 that he will now study for the priesthood. Uh, he goes to his first school, still a little bit rough around the edges, has a few run-ins with the Inquisition, because no one ex- expects the Inquisition. He moves to a second school... <laughs> Um, same thing happens there. He says, I'm going to Paris because they're just way more laid back there. Um, these are the same French, apparently, that they defeated him a few years earlier. And in Paris, uh, he stays out of trouble, becomes a priest, and also makes some incredible friendships. And with this band of brothers, over the next few years, they develop this, these exercises of the Spirit. Uh, they develop a desire to see others come to Christ, They think of how can we serve the church and and see others receive life in Christ. And so in 1539, they head to Rome. This man and his band of brothers place themselves in the service of the church. And in in 1540, uh, Pope Paul III uh, approved of the order that this man and his friends asked, uh, asked for. Uh, and declared them the Society of Jesus. You might know them as the Jesuits. And that man who had been shattered and yet made whole uh, was Ignatius of Loyola. One of those great examples that we in the Protestant church often miss because he tried to reform from within and did a fantastic job by, by most accounts but an incredible example of someone who begged the question, will these bones live? And found new life. And not only found new life, but developed a way of, of others finding that life as well. And in these last five minutes as we close here, I'd like us to do something with, with one of the pieces that Ignatius developed uh, that have been made famous uh, for Catholics, Protestants, and, and all other flavors of the Christian faith, Um, from his spiritual exercises, which was this 28, 30-day retreat that he would do uh, with those who would go through it, 
where you would enter into the story of Jesus and the story of scriptures by your imagination and engaging all your senses in the story. And from that, uh, we've kind of borrowed those ideas to do something called an Ignatian reading of scripture. As we're doing the stones and bones, we've, we've shared some other foundational practices. You know, last week, Brian had the thing with the uh, with the prayer of healing with oil on the forehead and at the kneeler. The week before, Scott shared about Lexio Divina. So an Ignatian reading of Scripture is just another, another way of going at uh, life in Christ, and particularly the Scriptures. And it's wonderful to use when you have uh, narrative pieces of Scripture where there's story and people involved. And so I'm just going to do a, this final reading, and it's from the lectionary for today that marries very perfectly with the Ezekiel passage. And no need to flip to a Bible, because in fact, I'd rather you just listened. And it's John chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. And what I'd suggest you do is, um, as it says there on the screen, try to vicariously enter this story. Use your imagination. Imagine the smells, the sounds even the taste, how it feels, what's going on around you, the emotions that would be going on. And perhaps to help you do that, pick one of the four people. I have no good guidelines for who you should pick. You know, shoot up a quick prayer and see if God tells you someone. But it might be interesting to see what it feels like to be Jesus, which I don't think is actually blasphemous, to to see what his experience is like in this. Or Mary of Bethany who's in this as well, or her sister Martha, or one that might be really fascinating is Lazarus, their brother. So Gospel of John, chapter 11. I'm going to read from the message translation. It's a little more story-like. It may help us hear the words a little differently. And I'm going to excerpt it a little bit. But if it helps you, you might want to close your eyes and really imagine that you're there. A man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. The town of Mary and her sister Martha is where he was sick. Now, this was the same Mary who had massaged the Lord's feet with aromatic oils and then wiped them with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Master, the one you love, your friend Lazarus, is very sick. When Jesus got the message, he said, This sickness is not fatal. It will become an occasion to show God's glory by glorifying God's Son. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, but oddly, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed on where he was for two more days. After the two days, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. He said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I'm going to wake him up. The disciples said, Master, if he's gone to sleep, he'll get a good rest and wake up feeling fine. Jesus was talking about death, while his disciples thought he was talking about taking a nap. So Jesus became explicit. Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there, because you're about to be given new grounds for believing. Now let's go to him. Now when Jesus finally got there, he found Lazarus already four days dead. Bethany 
was near Jerusalem, only, only a couple miles away, and many of the Jews were visiting Martha and Mary, sympathizing with them over their brother. Martha heard Jesus was coming and went out to meet him. Mary remained in the house. Martha said, Master, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask God, he will give you. Jesus said, your brother will be raised up. Martha replied, I know that he'll be raised up in the resurrection at the end of time. You don't have to wait for the end. I am the resurrection and the life right now. The one who believes in me, even though he or she dies, will live. And everyone who lives believing in me does not ultimately die at all. Do you believe this? Yes, Master. All along I've believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. After saying this, she went to her sister Martha and whispered in her ear, the teacher is here and is asking for you. The moment Mary heard that, she jumped up and ran out to him. Jesus had not yet entered the town, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When her sympathizing Jewish friends saw Mary run off, they followed her, thinking she was on her way to the tomb to weep there and to mourn. And Mary came to where Jesus was waiting and fell at his feet. Master, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her sobbing, and the Jews with her sobbing, a deep anger welled up in him. He said, where did you put him? Master, come and see, they said. And now Jesus wept. The Jews said, look how deeply he loved Lazarus. Though others among them said, well, if he loved him so much, why didn't he do something to keep him from dying? After all, he opened the eyes of a blind man. Then Jesus, the anger welling up within him, arrived at the tomb. It was a simple cave in the hillside with a slab of stone laid against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone. The sister of the dead man, Martha, said, Master, there's a stench. He's been dead four days. And Jesus looked her in the eye. Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God and then to the others, go ahead, take away the stone. They removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes to heaven and prayed, Father, I am grateful that you have listened to me. I know you always do listen. But on account of these people standing here, I've spoken so that they might believe that you sent me. And then he shouted, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out a cadaver, wrapped from head to toe with a cloth over his face. And then Jesus told them, unwrap him and set him free. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful 
than when it comes to stones and bones and the deep things of faith. You are not an archaeologist. You are a grave robber. And it's my prayer for each person here. Whatever, whatever has become lifeless and dry and scattered, or for some has never been alive in the first place, that you would make them whole, that you would put their life together rightly, and that you would breathe their spirit into them in whatever area it needs it, or for a whole life that has yet, as the young Ignatius had not done, surrender to you. Can these bones live? Only you know. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Respond as God's spirit leads you. Approach the table for communion, tearing a piece of bread, dipping it in the wine of the juice that's labeled there. You may want to spend some time reflecting in prayer. In fact, although it's a bit disturbing, there's a bit of a, uh, a meditation over here, if you'd like of that valley of dry bones. If it helps to, to come sit by here or kneel in prayer, uh, feel free to do that as well. And in fact, I'm going to hang out over here too in case anyone else wants someone to pray with them. And so uh, continue worshiping as God leads you.